you know, we know how we like to work. We kind of have a the kind of shorthand culturally. Um, I don't think that's easy to replicate over Zoom meetings and Slack chats and so forth. On Tech Talks today, we're joined by Ian Watts, the Chief Product Officer at Telema, an organisation providing digital insight for financial markets. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you a bit of tech news. Enjoy the show. It's uh, it's the day after the heat wave. It's still bloody hot. It's 29 degrees. But Akish, how did you enjoy the fact that we just experienced the most prolonged period of hot weather since 1961 in London? Uh, it's difficult to sleep. I'm not going to lie. The, the, the evenings were the evenings were probably worse than a day, um, I'd say. And I think I read somewhere it was the first time that in six six consecutive days you had temperatures over 20 degrees in the UK. No, over over the is it oh, over what, the whole UK? Yeah. So it, it was the first time. It was the it was the, the first time that I think. Uh, oh, I see that London yeah. surpassed thirty four degrees like five yeah. days in a row. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think in the evening, like the temperatures were twenty eight or, or like twenty five or twenty six degrees. Horrific. It was. It yeah. Begs, it begs the question: Is it worthwhile buying an air conditioning unit for five days a year? I was having this conversation yesterday, actually, um, and a couple of guys that I was having a conversation with have young babies and live in flats who... Yeah, that's dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the guys who we both know, um, who works with us, he actually resulted to a Virgin Active uh, lounge with his family um, where... <laughs> the young baby was taken swimming by the mother and he chose to remote work in their cafe. Um, at I'm, the trying, I'm trying to work out who's just had a baby recently. <laughs> <laughs> he's the Welsh, he's the Welsh guy that works with oh, us. Of course, there we go. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, well I suppose, yeah, that, that highlights how, yeah. 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 So, so when I rang him, I, I saw Virgin written behind him. I said, you, you're at the airport or something. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sat in their cafe, which actually seemed pretty nice. I, gave me a little 360 view um but yeah he was an aircon and there was free parking for four hours so yeah the new way of working babies can't regulate their temperature so yeah yeah good thinking that welsh man good thinking (laughs) um and now I can hear a lovely breeze coming through your window. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not meant to be that loud. No, it's nice. It's nice. It's, all, it's almost cooling me down. Kind of, yeah, um, thinking of all things nice weather and whatever else, our current guest is holed up in Greece. Mm. Ian Watt recorded this interview and then jumped on a plane to spend the next month uh, working and holidaying in Greece. So I, I'm quite jealous of that because even if it's 30 plus degrees in Greece, you've got a swimming pool and the sea mm, very true london london needs swimming pools on mass and coastline then it'll all be fine anyway yeah. so we'll hand over to ian uh he's the chief product officer at telema and then myself and akish will come back with some commentary afterwards so today i'm joined by ian what ian you are the chief product officer at telema how are you this morning i'm well how are you yeah not too bad thanks not too bad uh and you are about to depart to greece um, for a bit I of a am. holiday, but then, but then working, embracing the new world. Yeah, that's it. That's the the, the kind of new world of being able to work remotely. Um, you know, it means you can't fully ever go on holiday, perhaps. But uh, there it is. Yeah, I'll be working from Greece for the better part of. Oh, I don't know. 
I mean, you could you could have a staycation and say I'm not working this week and turn everything off, right? So I find that's absolutely impossible, actually. <laughs> if I'm at home, basically, and that's one of the challenges, actually, is trying to figure out when to stop the workday. Um, you know, that's a, the, a new challenge for this new world, but um, there definitely are, are positives as well. So tell us a little bit about Telemer and, and, and what the business does. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a London-based fintech company um, with an analysis, news, and data platform for basically anyone who's interested in emerging in frontier markets. Um, so we distribute our own analysis from our own proprietary independent research uh, provider, Telma Research, um, along with analysis and data from about 35 other providers around the world, predominantly in um, emerging and frontier markets. Um, so that's the, the kind of core proposition that we have. We also license our technology um, to various publishers, mostly sell-side institutions and IRPs. Um, and corporates as well. So we build, you know, all the products that we build here are for, you know, the explicit purpose of, of delivering insight to predominantly frontier and emerging markets focused investors. But um, we also have a business of, of licensing that technology onwards um, to people with, you know, in, in a similar space. I would imagine that it's quite a busy time right now because, well, let's face it, global economies are being heavily disrupted and there must be uh, a huge amount of um, volatility in the market and even investors Indeed. who generally know what they're doing will probably be trying to spy new opportunities, but also worried that what they traditionally have, have invested in may not be quite so secure. Yeah, absolutely. And we've actually seen that uh, borne out in the data. Um, we saw a you know all-time highs throughout uh, March and April for engagement on our platform with our, our information content. So yeah, there was a lot of volatility in the market, a lot of need for our clients to understand what's going on, um, particularly in these you know more esoteric economies where um, you know the information is not as uh, easily attainable. The you know our clients really look to us to help deliver uh, insight to them. So how did the business start? Because it's quite, an, from what you were saying before we hit record, it's quite an interesting story. It's uh, it's possibly not the usual route to, to a business starting, right? Certainly not. I mean, we are a, as I said, a fintech startup effectively. I mean, Telmer has been live for a little over a year now at this point. Um, but we started off the side of a desk at a, a kind of a small EM and frontier market focused investment bank and brokerage firm called Exotics Capital. So that's a company that's been around for about 20 years that was, um, you know, expert in um, basically you know, brokerage operations around illiquid, predominantly fixed income assets, um, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa and so forth. And that was actually why it was called, um, you know, a name that would, would never be called these days, Exotics Capital, because those instruments literally were referred to as exotic. Um, so quite kind of a niche area in which, you know, the exotics had a, a reputation of, you know, really intelligent analysts and a quality um, uh, sales and trading desk. But, you know, I think in light of MIFID 2 and a variety of other factors, um, you know, the the incoming CEO, um, our, our CEO, Duncan Wales, about four year, three or four years ago, made the decision that um, he's going to really um, turn a business out of the, the, the research division of that company. Um, and in order to, to facilitate that, he really needed a, a technology team that could um, build the technology to distribute that insight to the buy side clients who are predominantly our our, our end users. So I was brought in, yeah, in 2018 to help, you know, start from ground zero, building out a technology practice within 
that brokerage firm and investment bank. And that has ultimately led to us becoming, you know, a fundamentally a, a financial technology firm. We've actually sold our broking operations to INTL FC Stone last year. Um, so we are an information services business and a, and a financial technology service uh, business. And that's it. Just out of interest, culturally, how challenging was that? Because you obviously had the sponsorship of the CEO <laughs> who saw yes. the vision of where the business could go. Absolutely, yeah. And there was an established research department. That's one thing. It's mm-hmm. another thing entirely to have a tech-focused business that's building a tech platform when, when that has not been the direction of the business previously. I mean, it's an ongoing project. I think, you know, we made some massive strides in the last 12 months, frankly. Um, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons, I would have to say, of, of that, you know, that kind of transition. I mean, the pros are that we, well, first of all, we had no technical debt whatsoever. Um, we were building everything greenfield. So there's, there was no technology whatsoever. I was the first technologist hired at the company. Um, you know, there's other pros. We had 20 years worth of clients and a, a really client driven attitude throughout the organization. It's, you know, a brokerage company really is a client driven business. It's a relationship business. Um, but there, as you kind of allude to, there are a number of cons with that as well, which is, um, you know, fundamentally an information services and, and fintech company, you know, selling software as a service is is fundamentally different from a brokerage uh, firm. And the, the attitudes of the people are fundamentally different and the way that we go about um, thinking about what our client problems are, are, are fundamentally different, um, you know. We were, as I say, client-driven as an organization as a whole. That's that's what you have to be, but it was in a very limited domain. I think um, on certain parts of the in certain parts of the organization. So, you know, we want to find the best price for you for that asset you want to buy or sell as a as a client-driven um, kind of um, thought. But uh, that is quite limited as opposed to thinking about how the, the client, you know, how they consume information as a whole, how they get to de- to make that decision about whether or not to buy or sell that asset. Um, and that requires a, a, a fundamentally different um, kind of chain of thought or way of thinking. So, look, you're you're chief product officer, but you are also, in effect, CTO. You're the first technologist that came through the door, and you're building yeah. the engineering team. Quite interesting there that you said, you know, effectively had a blank slate, Greenfield Project, no technical debt. Mm-hmm. Um, quite exciting opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, what, what, what advice would you give to someone who's building a tech organization now? Because I'm assuming it's not. Let's buy lots of tin because then you're going to build up unnecessary <laughs> debt. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. kind of buying and leasing various different services from various different providers. Maybe I'm wrong. It'd just be interesting to get your insight around how you did that. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, I think it really helps to have someone, an internal champion who really has a good vision that, you know, shared with you about what you think the company can become. I mean, you'll never have an exact idea of what it is that you're going to be, you know, fundamentally building, what's actually going to be delivering value to clients. You have a good hunch and then you have to work on that. So don't go out and buy everything at once. I mean, you have to start from from the basics, trying to build, you know, a, a minimum viable version of um, that initial use case. So for us, it was um, it was thinking about ways that we could build an authoring tool to our analysts to quickly um, write and disseminate research. Um, they had legacy um, systems, basically Microsoft Word, turned into a PDF document that they would email out over Outlook. That's obviously not um, sufficient, you know, in the post MIFID two world. So, you know, that was our initial use case, and it's now expanded from there. But really, we started quite small, assessing what we should be building and what we should be buying. Um, because we're not going to be able to build everything. It makes no sense to do that. And there's, you know, the well-established firms in different areas um, that can help us, you know, get to scale much faster. 
so that was a, a huge part of assessing and being quite clear about what the, at least the vision is, if not exactly the, the individual steps to get to an end goal, the, the overall direction is quite important to understand that. And I think we've, you know, we've really been very much um, in the same direction that, uh, that Duncan Wells, our CEO, and I had laid out, you know, two years, three years ago now at this point. Mm. Um, so we, we've been on that journey, but it's been, you know, piecemeal from the very beginning to figure out what's going to get us to scale um, as fast as possible. And, and that's not building everything from scratch and not buying everything from scratch. It's some combination of the two. So you, you mentioned the fact that it's kind of like a boutique brokerage um, into into a fintech. You, 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 mm -hmm. you, weren't, you weren't a tech business um uh in terms of your heritage although there were kind of client client focused relationship driven uh, uh aspects to the business there that's right so yeah. some of the dna good some of the dna not so good exactly. in terms of what you've been able to kind of retain um how does the current climate now challenge that again right at the top of the interview you said you know we're adapting to this this new way of working what's your view on it what what dna are we going to carry forward now when you look at your organization and what might you put to one side and go, you know what, moving forward, maybe we don't need so much of this. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, the DNA, I think fundamentally is, it's a kind of combination. There's two sides of the house. So it's our expertise. We're going to retain that. And that's really what people are, are still looking to us for. So our independent research arm um, is still quite top notch. And people look to us for, for understanding these markets. I think, you know, the DNA that we're really trying to to kind of focus on is the way that we can um, close that decision action cycle. So to kind of make decisions much faster throughout our organization, um, which ends up leading to, to better product outcomes, which means that we're able to deliver more insight to our clients um, in a faster manner. So we're really actually bringing kind of an agile methodology from the, the product and engineering side of the house to everyone in our organization and by extension, therefore, our clients. So our sales and account management teams, our finance teams even, um, and then down to, to individual analysts as well sitting on the desk. I think there's been a, fundamentally a sea change in the way that they think about you know, what their job is and, and how they serve clients. And I think that is very much in line with you know, what's required of the moment right now. Um, to, to rethink how we can be of better service to clients who are working from home, you know, remotely trying to figure out, trying to get access to information wherever they might be. Um, it's really, um, it's fundamentally different than from, you know, distributing a PDF document to people who are sitting um, on, a, on a trading desk, um, you know, at a, at a large institution. So just thinking again about the evolution and the pivot of your own business, I suppose there was probably a lot of strength in being in the same office as, as those people and being able to talk to them and for them to be able to see the changes yeah. and, and how, how that was positively affecting the business. That's got to be harder now, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, I think, fundamentally a challenge. It's perhaps the thing that people aren't really thinking about in this new world is that, um, you know, we have benefited from the fact that we were co-located for so long and now we're remote. So, you know, almost everyone in our organization has met with every other person. Um, so we, you know, we know how we like to work. We kind of have a, a kind of shorthand culturally. Um, I don't think that's easy to replicate over Zoom meetings and Slack chats and so forth. So I think that will be one of those challenges that we'll have to figure out how to how to manage. And maybe that's, you know, a biannual offsite or something like that. Or maybe every quarter we get together, um, you know, in the offices in London, bring people in from our offices in Dubai, um, our U.S. team members as well. Um, you know, we have various analysts scattered throughout um, Africa as well. So we can, you know, bring everyone together potentially and including that, you know, new hires as well so that we get a sense of, you know, culturally who we are 
um, and that can translate to how we how we work with one another offline and online um, once we return back to our home offices. I think I think there's an interesting kind of split, isn't there? There's a division between everyone's talking about it's, it's easy to get on with a day job. Actually, everything's working. We're being productive within your teams. Like you're saying, at the minute, we do all have that cultural shorthand right now. However, mm-hmm. beyond our immediate teams within a wider organization, yeah, those teams may be drifting apart slightly. So I suppose it is, it is a challenge to keep the, the wider company as a whole together. Absolutely. I think tactically, you know, the working from home thing is 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 fine. It works quite well. Um, you know, it's more flexible. The hours are flexible. The the day to day job um, can be handled. We've found um, in some ways it's, it's even easier. But the strategic way that we work together, um, that is something that I think we're going to continue to challenge with. And I mean, we as collectively, um, we're going to continue to to struggle with. Um, and I'm sure there are ways that that organizations are addressing this. Um, I think this there's a, there's a, probably a lot of similarities with the way that asynchronous work um, happens at, at different organizations that are, have been you know remote first for the last five six years. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of lessons to draw from from those type of companies, but. I do wonder, and I'm a bit cautious that those types of organizations might be, you know, so tech focused, so tech um, based that it doesn't really translate to to client oriented service uh, industry. So we have to see, you know, how that what, what the implications are for firms like ours. Interesting observation. Look, um, I really appreciate your time. Um, I hope that uh, things continue to go well at Telemark. I hope that Greece turns out to not only be a lovely place to <laughs> to relax. But also to work. Uh, and uh, good luck with the rest of the summer. But Ian, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks very much, David. It must be quite an interesting um, situation to go into an organisation and have a completely different mindset to the culture and tradition of that particular business with mm. the, the, the express purpose of changing it. Yeah. And it, you, you're one of two things, right? You're either a revolutionary and you will get people really backing your idea and, and people thinking, you know, he's a, a kind of modern day Gandhi, so to speak, and he's going to, you know, help change things. Or you end up just looking like the odd one out and, you know, people thinking, well, what's all these ideas? Why are we trying to change something? There's always that you know, kind of adversity to change mindset. Um, that is in every organization, big or small, you know, doesn't matter what industry you're in. Um, and yeah, you, you either get kind of one or two things. And I think what Ian kind of alluded to is that they were quite open. It, it has been a challenge, but, you know, with the with the CEO and obviously bringing him on as the first person within that technology area and being completely greenfield, it, it's pretty much a technologist's dream isn't it really um to just come in here's a blank piece of paper and you know let's let's kind of get going basically um i think there's something also really interesting about the fact that you know he, he's gone into an organization that is heavily driven by relationships but actually his role is to look at um uh kind of research that's driven by data and offering that, that data is the value to the clients rather than relationships and there'll be lots of businesses now where you know if you think about our business where relationships are key to driving them but are operating in a slightly different world where they're a bit more distant i suppose and having something that's research based that offers a little bit extra value is going to be incredibly enticing so i suppose 
that will that will present a challenge to those businesses to make sure that they're able to stand out in the current market. You know, even post pandemic, we know that we're not going to be going back to five days a week like we were in in, in offices. And the idea that you're going to be kind of in front of people all the time from different organisations is is probably a little bit antique. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. And also, I think it, it, more and more companies will start to make data based decisions. And and you mentioned. Yeah. You mentioned our organization, you know, yeah, it's relationship driven, but I mean, you know, we've invested quite a lot in the last few months and will be in the next year or so on on new CRMs, new systems, you know, to allow us to get closer to our customers, but also then to help make better data decisions. And I think that's the same with, with Telemer as well. Yeah, the the foundation or, or the origins of the program were very much kind of based on relationships and that kind of brokerage business. And, you know, we all know what kind of brokerage in the city is like and was like. Um, and it's all about who you know and, and you know, who you trust and, and that sort of thing. But I think with, with Ian and, and kind of what that area of the business would probably bring is a bit more insight, a bit more actually Yes, you've got a relationship with, you know, X, but maybe it makes a better decision based on the data and based on the trades and the deals and, and whatever it's done to, you know, probably concentrate on on this market as compared to, you know, another. Um, which is so which I think maybe sometimes when you are in a relationship driven business, I think sometimes you can just go off the back of that relationships a bit too much, mm. I guess. And you know, with, with the with the enablement of data, it will just allow you to to actually take a step back and, and see, you know, the, the kind of holistic view, I guess. And I think the, the interesting thing that he raises here, right, is around the idea that instead of instead of having goals, people often think of organizations having mm. goals, it's more about the overall direction than meeting goals. Mm. Because I suppose you've got two divergent trains of thought and he's leading within this business. I mean, obviously now, you know, they, they've, they've gone and sold their trading firm, That's, mm. you know, back in 2019. So it took, only took a year really for him to, to realize the potential of what he was brought in to do mm. but where you've got two different divergent trains of thought and ways of working, the overall direction and making sure that everyone has a clear understanding of that is probably more important than, than smaller milestones yeah interesting, interesting yeah 100% and I think it's it's about kind of you know a word that we've heard a lot over the last five months in lockdown and you know across the globe and with organizations collaboration right and it's about uh bringing you know people together and working together as one and 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 really fighting to you know get better and, and get out of kind of where we are I think um uh, I, I think with the with having that goal-based approach, it allows you to do a lot more things as compared to having those small milestones and, and, and targets. I mean, there's still a place in businesses and projects and programs for that. But I think in order to just have that, look, this is where we need to be and, and what we're looking for, it allows you to bring in different resources. It allows you to bring in, you know, added kind of specialisms, relationships internally and, and with people um, and they've got a great setup there um, you know in terms of kind of I, I guess they've got a, a senior layer and that management team who's actually driven to to being you know that kind of um, research insight technology based kind of organization within that kind of fintech area in London um, and they're driving towards that you know they haven't kind of deviated a lot of the times and I think the temptation now for organizations maybe um crap we're in lockdown the pandemic's hit us you know what and where else can we be 
you know, and maybe deviate from their original kind of mission statement or, you know, kind of what they, they wanted to do and maybe try to put a finger in a few pies and just get the quick wins. But I think organizations like Telema who have that goal and will stay absolute true to it, um, I think in the long run, they 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 will, you know, persevere and, and probably come out better um, than the other organizations. Um, what do you think? Oh, this is something that we've spoken about a million times uh, in recent months, but it's still pertinent. He he talks very strongly about there there is a need to to um, meet in person occasionally. Mm. There's going to be a lot of organisations who, you know, recognise that we can't quite collaborate fully remotely and even remote first organizations will get together from time to time mm. um whether that be kind of once a year or twice a year that their, their, their teams will get together mm. uh, in person how frequently should that be how frequently should an organize should an organization get together in person to make sure that collaboration happens whilst you're in a remote setting i mean it's, it's topical because we, we were talking before we hit record about yesterday and you know our, a lot of people in our organization kind of met up yesterday it was actually the, the second meeting that we've had since going into lockdown in march where everyone or, or most people socially distanced you know kind of came into the office and maximum number of heads and that sort of thing um i, th- I think i think maybe once every month I'm, I'm guessing you know just to to have a touch point but it also depends on kind of you know what you're working on and, and if it's a a program if it's a project um and i think the biggest thing as well is is the social element right like where we can be very uh humans can be programmed very quickly to just kind of you know think and, and do and act in in one certain way i think by still having the the kind of touch points, the capabilities, um, you know, to meet up as people and, and and as as kind of you know individuals and come together as a team to help collaboration, to help with kind of you know team bonding strategies, operational um, you know kind of activities. I think it is still important, but I do worry about organisations that have huge you know kind of offices or assets and you know what what happens there you know if if everyone is remote and people are just coming in once a month and not it's not everyone you know some of these uh towers that we see in london i'm I'm talking there you know that that we've seen built out you know near liverpool street over the last few years what happens with all that space um yeah you know which is which is kind of worrying um especially so far reports suggest that those buildings are collecting their rent but will that continue yeah well exactly and i mean it's a matter of time before the government tap kind of you know switches off as well and then i think we would get a true reflection of where the economy is i mean it's already been announced that you know we are facing into the uh yeah you know we're getting into the, to the word beginning with r uh and ending with eshin um but i don't know let, 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 let's let's kind of see what happens i think but yeah but yeah Ian, thank you for being our guest. Really interesting insight there. Uh, So really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the worst city in the UK. Begins with a B. Bradford. (laughs) Not Bradford. (laughs) uh, This might surprise you. Bristol. Is no the worst, way. No. It's the worst UK city no. for broadband outages with 169 hours a year, right? So this is a new report about 
Almost 5 million consumers who suffered a broadband outage lasting more than three hours in the last year, with the average household losing a total of more than a day of internet time due to cutouts. Bristol has been named Britain's outage capital, with homes who have been hit by outages suffering an, on average, 169 hours a year on the internet loss. Um, which is equivalent to seven full days. The typical UK home that does experience outages, um, they're offline for 29 hours a year, according to a new report. This is all by uswitch.com, the utility comparison site. Uh, so look, this is, this is topical because obviously we're all working from home more and you might not want to move to a city where you're going to lose God yeah. knows how many working days because your internet ain't working. Um, any guesses what the best city in the UK is? Manchester. No. No. Cardiff. Cardiff. Mm. Cardiff. Only 1% of internet users losing service in the last year. Oh. So Manchester is also one of the worst cities. Really? Yeah. So the top, let's well, kind of saying it like it's the top 10 that's <laughs> supposedly good. It's not. This is the top nine cities. Um in descent, well, from 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 worst to ninth worst, Bristol, Brighton, Plymouth, Belfast, Newcastle, Sheffield, Manchester, London, and Birmingham. But Bristol is way out ahead, like miles out ahead. I'll share this uh, article in 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 the show notes. But it's one hundred and sixty eight point nine hours on average. Brighton's next closest on eighty nine hours. Wow. Bloody hell. I'm just thinking, last time I lived in Bristol, it was at uni and in my halls, we didn't have Wi-Fi. We had the old Ethernet cables. So anyone who's anyone who's a university goer um, who listens to this, you know, I, I was at uni. I'm sure you were at uni at the time. There was no Wi-Fi. I remember having it in our house. Um, yeah, we, we had a router on the landing with lots of wires coming from it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was always getting knocked off by people kind of coming in and out or running up and down the stairs and the odd you know house parties that you used to have when we didn't have to be socially distanced so i remember you know crowding oh, yeah. about 50 people into a three bed semi-detached house in uh in gloucester road in bristol but um yeah it was yes yeah, great great saying. city if you want a third of a pint yeah yeah also a very good place if you're um if you're just looking for a bit of uh yeah, rest and uh, rest and uh, recoup. Really, I'm a big it? fan of Bristol. This is not me having a go at Bristol, but <laughs> maybe maybe in the world of remote working, there's something there for Bristol City Council to be getting their teeth stuck into to make sure that they're not yeah. <laughs> almost twice as bad as the next nearest city. Exactly. Uh, and quite frankly, who the hell wants to live in Brighton? Um, <laughs> not that. Um, anyway having now offended uh, the citizens of Brighton I think that should probably be the end of the show (laughs) perfect cheers guys thanks for listening we'll be back next week